0: So, uh, as I'm pulling up my notes here, you guys can go ahead and turn to our passage for the evening, which is in Ezekiel chapter 4. Ezekiel chapter 4. Tonight, we are are continuing along our series, Why Is This Even In Here?, And we're looking at strange, odd, uh, difficult to understand, weird, boring, off-the-wall passages in the Bible. Trying to figure out why on earth, out of all the things that God could have included in the scriptures, these are the things that he decided to record. Um, So far, we have seen some very, very weird things. And, and today we'll see a passage that is very strange, uh, very weird, and uh, spoiler alert, also uh, truly very gross. So, I'll give you a little spoiler here here that the story we're going to read today um, will show us how dirty our sin makes us before the Lord. Um, Over the past, past week, uh, Allison and and I have been having some really good conversations. Um, Difficult, honest, uncomfortable conversations. Our conversations this week have have been about sin. Um, The sin in our hearts, uh, sins we've committed against each other, sins from our past, sins in the present, And this week in these conversations, she and I have allowed each other to uh, see some very ugly places in our hearts that uh, we would rather keep hidden. And having these kind of conversations is incredibly humbling. Um, It requires a tremendous amount of vulnerability and, and trust because in these conversations you are completely exposed. You are... Uh, completely um, vulnerable, and, and 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 that's that's unnerving, because you don't want the person that you love to see your worst. You want the person that you love to see your your best. Um, but as uncomfortable as these talks have been, I'm, I'm very very thankful that we've had them this this week. Uh, we we feel a lot closer now than than we've ever been. Um, we have. A deeper appreciation for one another's struggles and one another's flaws and weaknesses and sins. Both of us have cried uh, many tears this week. We've both felt uh, embarrassed. Um, we've both felt very sheepish in in moments as we've talked about these things because, in essence, we were we were taken off the fig leaf leaves. And. Um, of course, that doesn't mean that we're never going to sin each other again. And quite likely, we'll continue to sin against each other in very similar ways over and over. But that doesn't mean that we've allowed repentance to prevent us from continuing to live as we were meant to. We, we have repented so that we can be the, the, the partner to each other that we desire to be. Uh, rather than to remain, remain hidden. To remain covered in sin. Kind of like a woman named Garbage Mary. In 1977 in Delray, Florida, there was a woman taken to a mental institution. And uh, with as many stories as there are that begin with Florida man or Florida woman, uh, this one will come as no surprise. Doesn't seem too far-fetched. This particular woman had a reputation in her neighborhood for being somewhat what of a vagrant. Uh, She would often dig through the garbage, and she would look in the trash for food. She would take empty cans, and she'd bring them back to her apartment where she hoarded trash. Um, She she often would stand on the street begging for, among other things, food, cigarettes, even ice cubes. Uh, And so neighbors dubbed her Garbage Mary. Uh, Police uh, in Uh, 1977 1977 picked her up for soliciting at a shopping mall. She was trespassing. But instead of taking her to jail, they uh, saw that she was outside of her faculties and uh, she was admitted into a psych ward. And the police began an investigation. Well, when they investigated her apartment, um, unsurprisingly, they found that she lived there in squalor. Um, They found trash everywhere in her apartment. Trash was in the cabinets. There was trash in the fridge. There was trash in the bathtub. Everywhere in the apartment was filled with garbage. But then they found something in that apartment that surprised them very, very much. They found documents proving that Garbage Mary was actually worth a fortune. Her real name was Kathleen Nelson Colley. And she was the daughter of a very wealthy attorney Attorney. and bank owner. Police found paperwork in her apartment showing that she owned $400,000 worth of stock in mobile oil. She also owned drilling rights to fields and property in Kansas. She had eight different bank accounts all of which had, of course, a very healthy balance in them. They found securities from several large companies. All told, when you put all these things together, it became very clear that Garbage Mary was a millionaire. So the question became, why is a millionaire living in a $150 a month apartment, scourging through the garbage, for food. That question, to this day, remains a mystery, at least to the interested public. But something caused her to live like someone that she was not. Something was causing her to live like a pauper when she was actually an heiress. Something was causing her to sleep in the trash when she could very well afford to sleep in the penthouse. Now, we don't know what that was. But at some point, she began to dig through the dumpsters, and then she never got the smell of it off of her. Once she dove in, for whatever reason, she could never dive back out. She was entitled to wealth... To privilege and to plenty, but for some reason she traded that for self inflicted poverty. Now, this is in no way an indictment on the mentally ill. Um, It is quite possible that Kathleen Collie was driven to a place where she could not control uh, the decisions that she was making. It is quite possible that she lacked the, the faculties necessary in order to be rational. Um, it is quite possible that at some point she was no longer able to think clearly out of no fault of her own. We're not sure. We do know that at some point she was married twice. At some point she had the presence of mind to build an impressive and diverse portfolio uh, and so at some point, we know that she had presence of mind. We don't know what snapped. So this is not in any way a- an intent to, to denigrate her. But her story presents for us an intriguing picture of what happens when someone lives in filth when they don't actually have to. Because that is exactly what happens when we choose to live in sin instead of the spiritual wealth of the kingdom of God to which we are entitled as heirs to the throne far too often we trade the riches of God's mercy and love and grace for the garbage and the temptations of the world God has poured blessing upon blessing into our spiritual accounts. And yet, far too often, we find ourselves digging around in the garbage, filling our hearts with the empty cans of lust and greed and and idolatry and selfish desire. But thank God we have a God who purchases for us a path to repentance and restoration and peace. So, with those things being said, let's now read our passage for today. Ezekiel chapter 4, uh, verses 1 through 17, which is uh, the entire chapter. And you, son of man, this is, of course, God speaking. And you, son of man, take a brick and lay it before you, and engrave on it a city, even Jerusalem, and put siege works against it. And build a siege siege wall against it. Cast up a mound against it. Set camps also against it. And plant battering rams against it all around. And you, take an iron griddle. And place it as an iron wall between you and the city. And set your face toward it. And let it be in a state of siege. And press the siege against it. This is a sign for the house of Israel. Then, lie on your left side. And place the punishment of the house of Israel upon it. For the number of the days that you lie on it, you shall bear their punishment. For I assign to you a number of days, 390 days, equal to the number of the years of their punishment. So long shall you bear the punishment of the house of Israel. And when you have completed these, you shall lie down a second time, but on your right side, and bear the punishment of the house of Judah. Forty days I assign you, a day for each year. And you shall set your face toward the siege of Jerusalem, with your arm bared, and you shall prophesy against the city. And behold, I will place cords upon you, so that you cannot turn from one side to the other, until you have completed the days of your siege. And you take wheat and barley, beans and lentils, millet and emmer, and put them in a single vessel, and make your bread from them. During the number of days that you lie on your side, three hundred and ninety days, you shall eat it and your food that you shall eat shall be by weight 20 shekels a day from day to day. You shall eat it and water. You shall drink by measure the sixth part of a hin. from day to day. You shall drink and you shall eat it as a barley cake baking it in their sight on human dung. And the Lord said thus shall the people of Israel eat their bread unclean among the nation nations where I will drive them. Then I said, Ah, Lord God, behold, I have never defiled myself from youth up until now. I have never eaten what died of itself or was torn by beast nor has tainted meat come into my mouth. Then he said to me, See, I assign to you cow's dung instead of human dung on which you may prepare your bread. Moreover, he said to me, Son of man, behold, I will break the supply of bread in Jerusalem. They shall eat bread by weight and with anxiety, and they shall drink water by measure and in dismay. I will do this that they may lack bread and water, and look at one another in dismay, and rot away because of their punishment. Okay, Uh, well, that was weird. Sometimes the Bible is very straightforward, right? When it says things like, thou shalt not kill. Or, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. Then, there are passages like these, where the prophet of God is playing with tinker toys and eating defecates. So, what is it that's going on in this passage? And, of course, the question is, why is this even in here? So let's start by doing the same thing that we've done every week so far in this series with a quiz. We're going to ask, what are the four principles of scriptural interpretation that we've been talking about so far? So don't put them up on the screen yet, Josh. There are four laws of scriptural interpretation. What are those laws? Yes, sir, I see that hand. What's that? Genre. Genre matters is one. Yes. What else? Scripture interprets Scripture. Yes, this is so far very, very good. Better than we've done. There are two more, two more. The Bible must be read as an ancient document. Yes. And the last one. Yes, you guys nailed it. Give yourselves a hand, will you? A smattering of applause for you. Yeah, go ahead and put those up on the screen there, Josh. These scriptural interpretation principles are applied to this passage and every other passage of scripture. We must first recognize that the Bible is an ancient document written by ancient authors to an ancient audience in an ancient time. And once we first understand the ancient meaning, we can then extrapolate from it the eternal meaning. We can't start with ourselves as we read the Bible. We have to start with God. And we have to start what God intended to communicate to the first audience to which the passage was written. Once we understand that, then we can extrapolate from it what God has for us eternally. And then we note the, dis- the, the difference between description and prescription. That sometimes the Bible records things without recommending those things. Just because something is written in the Bible doesn't mean that it's good. And, and one of the beauties of Scripture is that it records the sins of the people within. Even the heroes of Scripture are revealed to be filled with sin. Which gives each one of us hope. Because if God is going to use a bunch of dum-dums, maybe he he can use me too. Next, we uh, see that genre matters. That there are various literary genres represented in the Bible. Poetry, narrative, law, letters. And we have to read those as those literary genres demand to be written. And then finally, scripture interprets scripture. When we're trying to make sense of one piece, we have to put it in the context of the entire picture, not only of the chapter it's found and the book in which it's found, but also the entire document of the word. These things will help us to better understand every place in the Bible that we come to. So let's now use these principles to figure out what on earth is going on in this very strange story. So if you're taking notes, here is point number one. Sometimes showing is more effective than telling. What we have here in Ezekiel chapter 4 is essentially an interactive theater art piece. Ezekiel is a prophet. He is God's messenger Messenger to to the people. people. Um, And so rather than him getting up and preaching a sermon which he does, uh, by the way, in other places in this book. But in this particular case, rather than getting up and speaking verbally a sermon, he performs a drama that lasts a period of 390 days and then an additional 40 days, which by my very, very bad off-the-top-of-the-head math is 430 days. Is that right? Yes? 430? Very good. So 430 days, he performs this drama. This is kind of like show and tell. He has something to tell them. And so to drive drive it home, he has some weird stuff to show them. Um, Ezekiel uh, would be someone living in a place visible to the people. We don't know where exactly his house was. We don't know what his address would be but we have to imagine that he was in a very public space and that God would only ask him to do this if it was going to be visible to the people because, God says, this is a sign for the house of Israel. So wherever Ezekiel is, he is doing this where the house of Israel, where the people would be able to see him. He is in front of everyone doing this for over a year. So for the purposes of imagination, imagine that Ezekiel is living in a house near the public square in Jerusalem. So as he's performing this very strange, very weird drama, people are walking past him as he's doing this every single day. This would have been the talk of the town. As families are sitting in their homes at night, as people are walking around in the marketplace, as travelers are coming in and out of the city, they're talking amongst themselves. Did you see what Ezekiel is up to today? He's still at it. And did you see him eating that disgusting bread again? again? Isn't he tired of laying on his side? For a grown man, he sure does play with Legos a lot. Um, By the way, this is kind of a random aside, Um, have you guys seen in the grocery store a brand of bread called Ezekiel 4-9 bread? Anyone seen this? Okay, raise your hand if you've seen this. All right, uh, awesome. I'm glad that you guys have, because uh, if you were looking at me like it it wasn't a thing. It, it truly is a thing. This is an organic brand of bread made from the whole grains that are mentioned in Ezekiel four nine, where it says, you take wheat and barley, beans and lentils, millet and emmer, put them in a vessel and make your bread from them. Okay, so this company has a brand of bread inspired by this verse. So, I I went to their website because on their website, I was hoping that they would explain exactly how they make their bread. All right. Because they list the ingredients and they explicitly say on their website that it is inspired by the Holy scriptures in Ezekiel four, nine, but I need to know how far do they take the inspiration of scripture? Okay. Because I need to know if they are making this bread over open flames of burning dung. Until I know that for sure, until I know for sure what their process is, I will not be trying this brand of bread. Because if they're really basing it on the Bible, they are really basing it on the Bible. Okay? Yes, they're basing it off of verse 9. But if they're inspired, I want to know how inspired they truly are, okay? So anyway, with that being said, Ezekiel has a message from God for the people, and God has him do this performance rather than just just using words, Again, there's plenty of times that Ezekiel uses words. Uh, There's plenty of times in the book of Ezekiel that he stands up and he gives a lengthy discourse. But this is an example of a time where he uses symbolism as well. And this isn't the only time that we see this sort of thing happening in scripture. For example, if you've ever read the book of Hosea and you've wondered, why on earth did God command the prophet to marry a prostitute? Something that would have not only been looked down upon, but would have been against every social convention of the day, Uh, and and would be marrying an an adulteress. Why did God have him do do that? Well, it was because it was a picture to the people. God had a message for the people, and the message in that particular case was, you have been cheating on me. And you have been selling yourself to these other gods. You have been prostituting yourself spiritually to all these foreign idols in the nations. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to show you exactly what this looks like. I'm going to have my prophet marry a prostitute so that you can look at it and go, unbelievable. But that's exactly what you are doing. There's another strange passage in Jeremiah chapter 13, where Jeremiah essentially is commanded to buy some really, really expensive underwear. I assume that it was that that, uh, uh, year's version of Under Armour. Uh, So he buys this ancient Under Armour underwear, which is far too expensive, and then he's commanded to immediately bury it. So he buries it under a rock, and he goes back to dig it up the following week, and the underwear has rotted. Weird passage. What's going on in that passage? He is showing the people that their sin is rotting them from the inside out. No matter how expensive or or fancy they may seem to be. Then there's a passage in Isaiah chapter 20. Where the prophet Isaiah is commanded for three years to walk barefoot. Um, And this was a visual uh, of what would be happening with a people group called the Cushites, who, who would be led away barefoot and naked into slavery. So, all over Scripture, there are examples in which God uses some type of visual communication in order to give a message to the people. So this passage is, is one of those places. Where God is trying to vividly communicate to the people a certain message in order to prompt a response from them. He's trying to get them to respond to this clear message. Clear to them, perhaps. But not so clear to us. So what is that message? Well, let's put this in its ancient context. This takes place prior to the invasion of Babylon. Babylon would soon be coming into Jerusalem and destroying it, taking the Israelites into exile. At this time, they would destroy the city. They would destroy the temple. Uh, They would take the people into slavery. Um, And so Ezekiel is issuing warning after warning to the people to repent prior to that event it became clear as we continue to read through the book of Ezekiel that God was going to hand this kingdom over to Babylon. And this was an act of judgment for their sin. Despite warning after warning after After warning, warning, the people continued to pursue false gods. The people continued to pursue uh, and worship foreign idols. No matter how much God tried to call out to them and, and bring them back, these people continued in their sin. And if only there was something relevant in that to us today, right? Maybe some way we'll find it. Now, when the Babylonians did come, when they would eventually show up to, uh, to take the Israelites into exile, they laid siege against Jerusalem. That's a process that wouldn't happen overnight. This siege against Jerusalem is a process that would take months because Jerusalem was a fortified city. It had strong walls. So that means that, means that, even. that even though for a long period of time, there was an enemy that they were able to keep out, it would also mean that during that time, Jerusalem is closed off to any resources outside the wall. Before long, they would be getting starved out. They would run out of food and fuel and water inside the city. And so when we look at Ezekiel 4.9 and in the ingredients that are listed for this bread, this, the ingredients point to the fact that this bread is being made out of whatever is left. Good bread, bread that you would want to actually eat every single day, was made with flour, oil, and honey. The fact that this bread is being made with a, a, a mixture, mixture of, cheap, of the- cheap grain means that they're going to be so poor and so out of their normal resources, they're going to be making bread out of whatever's left that they can throw together. Uh, The company that makes the Ezekiel 4-9 bread thinks this is some kind of genius formula for a healthy diet. But the Israelites would have looked at this bread and said, this bread tastes like poverty and sadness. So that's another reason why I'm not interested in Ezekiel 4, 9 bread. So what is happening in this picture is God is showing the people vividly through this interactive theater art piece, through this drama, he is showing them, them, if you do not turn and repent from your sin, if you do not come back to follow faithfully after me, this is what's going to happen. All that you see Ezekiel performing here, this is what is to come. This is going to be your life. And again, at this time, they're milling about. Everything is good. Everything is smooth. They know that Babylon is out there, but that may not ever happen. YOLO, we're going to live for today. But for a period of 430 days... There's a flashing warning sign in the city square. As Ezekiel plays with his tinker toys and he eats bread that's being cooked over an open flame of feces. It's a warning sign. This is what is to come. This is also a vivid display of the reality of their sin. Point number two. Unrepentant sin is like a diet of defecakes. I, um, I can't take credit for the term defecakes, unfortunately. I was teaching on this passage in our college Bible study earlier in the year. And one of our college students, Ian, uh, I was calling these poop cakes. And uh, Ian raised his hand and he was like, defecakes. And I'm like, yes, defecakes. That is way better. Um, I, I hate to keep harping on the company that makes Ezekiel, Ezekiel 4-9 bread. Um, but gosh, did, did they not read the rest of the passage? As you look at this passage, you probably wonder, what's the deal with the poop? Why is God asking Ezekiel to make bread first, he says, over human dung? That's really gross. And then Ezekiel says, hold on. God, I've never defiled myself. I've never allowed anything unclean to come into my mouth. I've never eaten anything that died in the wrong way. Don't make me do this. And so God is like, all right, buddy, I won't make you cook your bread over human dung. It'll be cow dung instead. (laughs) I imagine Ezekiel's like, um, thanks. Thanks. (laughs) I have to go gather this every single day in order to make it the fuel. So he is the poopsmith every single day, going to get dung to bring back to his house to then light it on fire. Why is this going on? What's happening here? Well, as it turns out, um, in ancient times, when uh, fuel for fire, uh, wooden fuel, when when regular fuel, which would be wood or, or straw, when wooden f- fuel was scarce, dung was commonly used uh, to fuel fire. So it would be dried, and then it would be mixed with straw. This was a practice used then, but in fact, it, there are places still in the world today uh, where that practice takes place, because it's cheap, cheap and, and, and cheap. it's easy to find, as long as there's cattle, there's a never-ending supply of fuel for the fire. There is, however, one very obvious side effect of using this type of fuel source for conflagration. And that would be the odor. Remember I said earlier that Ezekiel's house would have been in a place where lots and lots of people are able to see what he is doing. So imagine his house is close to the city square. And he is cooking three meals a day over a bed of excrement. Do you know what that would have done? That would have filled the city square with the smell of burning feces. want to talk about sending a message message. for a period of 390 days this joker does this imagine being one of his neighbors okay i have had neighbors that have complained that my kids were being too loud thankfully i have never had neighbors complain because there is an unbelievably strong smell of crap coming out of my apartment but that's exactly what's happening With Ezekiel. The people around him. Every single day. Are faced with this smell. That keeps going. And going. And going. And going. What did that symbolize? What was he trying to communicate. To the people. By doing this. He was communicating to them. That their unrepentant sin. Causes a spiritual stench in the nostrils of their God. You see, our sin defiles us before the Lord. And when we remain in it, when we persist in it, that sin becomes the odor of our lives. It becomes, in a spiritual sense, what is coming off of us consistently. When we refuse to repent, when we continue to resist the gracious offer of God to cleanse us, what we're left with is spiritual poverty. Because we're cut off from God's riches, what we're left with is BS. Literally in this passage, but metaphorically in our lives. You see, as Christians, when we are guilty of this, when when we are living living in sin, sin, when when there's places in our hearts that we won't give to God, when there's things in our lives that we hold on to, when we say, you can have everything, Lord, but, but this is mine. When we hold back those things, instead of living in the wealth and the spiritual abundance of blessing that we've been given, we instead live like garbage Mary. We keep dumpster diving in the temptations of the world. And when we do that, we smell like crap. I want you to notice something about this, though. See, even though the fire stinks, the bread is still edible. It might smell awful, but Ezekiel can still eat it. And if you were lucky enough in that moment to have no sense of smell, you might be fooled into thinking that it was really good bread, and you could even start a company to make money off of it. But here's what I want you to see in that. You can can fool people around you who have no sense of spiritual smell. You can fool people into thinking that you are righteous. You can fool people into thinking that you have it all together. That when you walk into church on Sunday, you're completely put together. You don't have the same weaknesses as everyone else. You present yourself as perfect Christian American with good morals and family values. But if you are hiding sin in your heart, God can smell it. And you still stink. See, if you were to take garbage Mary... And put a nice clean new dress on her. But she doesn't bathe before she puts it on. She might look clean. She might look put together. But she'll still reek like garbage. And the only people she would fool are the people whose noses don't work. My friends, our sin makes us reek before God. And even if we look good on the outside... There's still a barrier between us and God. Look at what happens in verse 3. Uh, God has Ezekiel build his tinker toys uh, of Jerusalem. He, he erects out of clay uh, his little clay toy set. Yeah, Put, but siege, siege works against it. it. And then in verse 3 it says this. And you take an iron griddle and place it as an iron wall between you and the city. And set your face toward it. And let it be in a state of siege and press the siege against it. This is a sign for the house of Israel. In this particular setting, Ezekiel is representing God. And of course, Jerusalem is representing the people. And God says that he needs to take this iron griddle and stick it as a wall in between the city and God. This symbolized the fact that there is a barrier between the people and God, that our sin blocks us from fellowship with him. Not because God has placed a wall there, not because God has separated himself from us, not because God is the one who says, I want no part of you. It is because our sin puts that wall there. We have placed that barrier between ourselves and God if we choose to persist in sin. We need to understand the perspective that God has in this setting. A little bit later on in chapter 6, there's a verse uh, that explains the heart of God in this. Uh, Ezekiel 6, 9 says, Then those of you who escape escape will remember me. Among the nations where they're carried captive, how I have been broken over their whoring heart that is departed from me, and over their eyes that go whoring after their idols. And they will be loathsome in their own sight for the evils that they have committed, for all their abominations. God says very clearly here that his heart breaks over our sin. That when he views us, it is not just as some distant judge. He says, your sin breaks my heart. This is not a God who is an angry tyrant who just loses his ever-loving mind when we break his arbitrary rules. This is a loving father who hurts when we betray him. Who feels the pain of every sin that we commit against him. But that, my friends, is where we begin to encounter the good news in this passage. Point number three God's patience is beyond imagination. As I've mentioned before, this interactive theater art piece was in two parts 390 days and then 40 days, 430 days. Not quite a year and a half, but about a year and a quarter. And one of the,
1: one things, of the things, that things that that symbolizes, symbolizes
0: for us is he is giving the Israelites lots of time to repent. And in the meantime, he's giving them powerful visuals to get their attention. Again, this is not just Ezekiel standing up on the street corner and preaching in a way that it could be easily ignored. Ezekiel is doing things that are very obvious and very jarring so that he can grab the attention of the people for over a year to say, It's not too late. It's not too late to repent. You guys understand what this means. You guys can see it with your own two eyes. You can smell it with your nose. I know you want me to stop cooking my dinner every day over, the, over this open flame of dung. You have time. Repent. Do it. If we were to look at the course of Ezekiel's life, his ministry lasted over 20 years. And his ministry is filled with these types of strange moments. Ezekiel is one of the weirdest books in the entire Bible. It starts out weird and stays weird throughout the rest of it. It's one of those places that if you're reading through the Bible and one of those read through the Bible in a year plans, you get to Ezekiel and you're like, wow, this is a wicked left turn into weirdness, okay? Okay. This 20-year ministry was filled with these types of symbols. And over and over, it means that the Israelites could have repented. They still had a chance. But they did not. If we were to take that thought and, and, and bring it out to bird's eye view and stretch it out over the period of the Old Testament. The timeline of the Old Testament spans over 4,000 years. And throughout that 4,000 years, there is a consistent cycle. That consistent cycle of blessing, then sin, then judgment, then repentance, and then start over. Blessing. After the repentance. But then they fall back into sin. And then they're judged. And then they repent. Oh but then they fall back into sin. Over and over and over again. For 4,000 years. In the Old Testament. This happens. All the while. God. Never gives up. On Israel. Even when Israel was repentant. Even during those periods of time where they were living faithfully. It's not as if God didn't know that in a short period of time they would be walking back into the same old sins. It would only be a short matter of time before they followed the same old idols again. And even when he enacts righteous judgment, still his patience patience never, never runs out. Never runs dry. We serve a God whose patience never runs dry. And where does that all lead us? It leads us straight to Jesus. Jesus who pays the penalty to cleanse us from our sin. Jesus who promises to over and over clean the crap off of us when we repent. And Jesus never gives up on us. Thank God he never gives up on us. Or I would not be standing in front of you today. And I'm sure none of you would be here either. And so we have to choose. We have to choose if we will be Kathleen Nelson Colley. And live in the wealth and the privilege and the blessing that we've been given from our father. Or... Will we be garbage Mary, digging around in the trash heap of the world and all of its empty promises? Ask yourself, which one are you today, right now? If you're living like garbage Mary right now, the promise of Scripture is that he can clean you up and restore you if you repent and turn from your sin. If right now you're living like Kathleen Nelson Colley, let this this be a warning. Do not let your guard down because you are one choice away from a slippery slope. One of the things that Allison and I were talking about this week is that even when you are in a place where you are spiritually healthy and everything's good... If you let your guard down, if you give sin even an inch in your life, it will take a mile. And it will take you further than you ever thought it would. And you will end up in a place where you go, how on earth did I end up here? Truthfully, we know that we are going to be like Israel over that period of 4,000 years. One day we're Kathleen. The next day, we're garbage Mary over and over and over, back and forth like some kind of spiritual disassociative identity disorder. Thank goodness that we have a God who continues to cleanse us over and over and over until we reach home. And so, from one garbage Mary to a bunch of other garbage Marys, I implore you, let's stop eating Ezekiel bread and let's follow after the God who offers us the wealth and the blessing that comes with faithfulness to him. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for the truth of your word. Thank you that you offer us continual restoration, that you never give up on us That you always love us. You always Always endure endure your patience patience and and long suffering and mercy are always present every morning. Thank you, Lord, that there is no one under the sound of my voice who is too far from God. There is no sin that they could ever commit that you cannot forgive. Thank you that you offer cleansing to the worst of sinners. Thank you, Lord, that when we look at Scripture, we can see the failures, the abject failures that you decide to use for your story of redemption. Murderers, thieves, liars, adulterers, flat-out idiots. God, every single one of us is one of those, if not all of them. Thank you, Lord, that your love is based on you, it's not based on me. And so God, I pray that if there's anyone who has never come to a place where they've given their life to you, let tonight be the night that you draw them in. Let tonight be the night that they say, I want to give myself to you, Jesus. God, for the rest of us, For those of us who have come to a place at some point where we've given our hearts to you, God, I pray that we would continue to allow you to to get deeper and deeper into our hearts, that we would continue to allow you unfettered access to the places that we have tried to keep hidden for so long, that there would be nothing that we hold back, that we give you our time, our talents, our treasures, that we give you every room in the house that we allow every closet to be opened to give you access to the skeletons that we've hidden there. God, change us with your grace. Change us with your mercy. Change us from Garbage Mary to Kathleen Collie. Lord, as we sing this final song to you, I pray that the Holy Spirit will continue to work this truth into our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Stand and we will close in worship.